Hello and welcome to a special end of the year edition of Talking General Practice, the podcast from GP Online. I'm Emma Bauer, the editor of GP Online. This week, we thought we'd bring you some highlights from our top interviews of 2023. And we've had some really fantastic guests this year. Coming up, we'll be hearing from the BMA GP Committee Chair for England, Dr Katie Bramlstainer, Royal College of GPs Chair, Professor Camilla Hawthorne, NHS England's Director for Health Inequalities, Professor Bola Owalabi, RCGP Wales Chair, Dr Rowena Christmas, and all-round general practice policy expert and fellow podcast host, Ben Gowland. And between them, they'll be talking about GP contract negotiations, continuity of care, what we can do to retain more GPs, influencing politicians in the run-up to next year's general election, the difference healthcare professionals can make on health inequalities and the future of primary care networks. So all the big issues. I hope you enjoy this. First up, here's a bit of the interview we did back in August with BMA England GP Committee Chair Dr Katie Bramlstainer. I spoke to Dr Bramlstainer just over a week after she took on the job. She was such a great guest, so the full interview is really well worth a listen. But in this clip here, she talks about taking on the role as GP Committee Chair, what she hopes to achieve in this year's contract negotiations and the importance of the independent contractor model. First of all, congratulations on your appointment as chair of the GP Committee in England. I mean, that's a big job. (laughs) Uh, And indeed, commiserations, uh, I think, are in order as well. It's not really a post I ever had aspirations to hold or ever expected to hold. But I think it's an interesting time for GPs. And I think GPs of a certain age, myself included, are very anxious about the years ahead. And I think we recognise that it's make or break time now for us. That's where we are. It's going to be a lot of hard work, but I don't mind hard work. We're going to do the best we can. And I can't promise wonders. And I know it's not going to be all cupcakes and rainbows, but we will work as hard as we can to do the best job we can. So I guess we should start with some of the big issues that you're going to have to be dealing with in this role. And, And, you know, they are really big challenges. You're obviously under no illusions about the scale of the task ahead. Your statement after you were elected said that your focus and greatest challenge was to safeguard the very survival of our profession. What's your approach to that? Where do you start? Well, yeah, where indeed it can be quite overwhelming. But I think the important thing to do is to have a good feel for the temperature check of of GPs out there. This year was the second consecutive imposition of a contract. And I think an absolute red line for us is going to be we cannot have a third imposition. We've got a government coming towards the end of its lifespan. There has to be a general election before the 31st of January 2025. It's probably not going to be in January 25. It's probably not going to be in December 24. So we're looking at next autumn, which means we've got a year to really get into politicians' heads and and make the case for general practice, how efficient it is, how safe it is, the remarkable things that it does, because their manifestos are going to be written in the next six months. This is our window of opportunity that's going to shape healthcare for the next parliament. And we've got to make sure that, yeah, okay, the DES comes to the end of its lifespan on the 31st of March 24, I can't see anything big, sexy, new and exciting being launched in the next six months. We know that government has budgeted 
an increase of 0.1% for health before the end of this parliament. So that is nothing. In fact, it's a real terms cut when you factor in inflation and, and the costs of living and the overheads for practices and so on. We know that next year is far more likely to be kicking the can down the road and probably leaving the really meaty issues for the next government, whatever shape and form and whenever that government takes place. So not allowing another imposition, agreeing a contract agreement that is fair and reasonable for 24-25 is, is absolutely vital. And part of that is making sure general practice is properly supported. And that's not just about money. I think we've got a box a bit clever, because if there is no money, the magic money tree is apparently empty, is a question many of us might have different opinions on. We've got to make sure that practices remain viable and can see patients, but also try and put some measures in place to help reduce the workload of GPs and make general practice a place where GPs want to work, make it feel safe. Because at the moment, why would many people gaining their CCT feel that it's a safe decision to enter into a partnership, for example? So we need to see some genuine markers from government that actually they are willing to protect general practice. And there is that ambition longer term. There's something to look forward to. The most important thing from my perspective is hope. It's making sure there's hope there for the existing workforce and maybe enough hope to tempt back some of our workforce that have chosen to walk away. If there is no money, we have to think of some really elegant solutions as to how they can use existing budgets differently to give us what we need to change. So, for example, you could change the legislation around GMS and PMS contracts to permit limited liability vehicles to hold those contracts. That you know, doesn't cost the government anything. And we can work through what that might look like in terms of risks elsewhere, but it's already permitted under APMS. So why can't it be permitted under GMS and PMS? Because were I a prospective partner or were I a partner anxious about my liabilities, actually, if I can put a limit on those liabilities, I would sleep much more comfortably at night. And that, that's an example of things that we can do. And if there's already being money budgeted for workforce or if there's existing underspends, then they can be recycled, repurposed, rebadged and used in a way that's going to make much more sense for GPs on the ground and the practices that they're working in. Do you believe that saving general practice is the same thing as saving the independent contractor model? Would you argue that? Yeah, I, I think it is. If you want to do some really fancy stuff about totally different models of delivery and so on, I think we all know that as I've called them, the pyjama session or the sofa session, when you're there with your laptop, logging in, doing your results, your path, your admin, your letters, your tasks. And when you're a partner, you are invested. You are invested to the point that you, even your home and, <laughs> that you live in is at risk potentially if, if that contract goes wrong. So partners are immersed in their communities and they have to make it work. And, and that's why I think the independent contractor model remains the cornerstone of general practice. It's more than an economic case, but it makes a very strong economic case. It's about continuity of care. And that brings with it quality and trust and strength and consistency of the relationship of a patient with their family doctor throughout you know, all their health outcomes. If it was a drug, then NICE would be saying we need to have it 
twice a day, you know, and it should be free at the point of delivery. And because it's it saves lives, it reduces mortality and morbidity. Continuity of care is what we need to be championing. It's just so important. So yeah, I think it's always remained at its core. No, it's not perfect, but I am yet to see another proposal that makes as much sense as what we have now. And I would argue that general practice isn't broken it has been broken and the partnership model isn't broken it is being broken you've mentioned hope a couple of times that you want to to give the profession some kind of hope over the next year or so i mean how hopeful are you personally about the future of general practice in england i'm hopeful because if i didn't have hope i wouldn't be doing this job right yeah it's what makes me get up every morning and and it's knowing what we do. And I, I kind of want to see a much more trumpeting of, of the amazing stories of what general practice achieves. Over a million patients are seen every single day. You know, almost almost half of those million patients are on a same-day urgent care basis. So we talk about potentially creating some waiting lists, and that might be, you know, three, four, five, six wait to get something done routinely. Well, so what? What is it in your local trust? How many months is that to see somebody? We are incredibly efficient. We're an amazing model. If they tried to get rid of us, they'd have to reinvent us. You can't run a health service without a robust general practice. And, you know, I'm sure there are plenty of people that would like to see, you know, reprocurements and 111 doing a single point of access of, of triage. You know, people have spoken about that. And I just sit back and laugh because these people have no idea how general practice is run. So they have no idea of the tens of thousands of calls a day across every system that practices pick up and how efficiently they manage it. And you only have to look at the vaccination program when, you know, when the proverbial really does hit the fan, who do they come to to get things done? Think back to December 2021, when suddenly it was everybody needs a booster by Boxing Day. And who do they go to? The mass vax providers, the trusts? No, they came to general practice because they know they need general practice. So as I always say very proudly, we are the cockroaches of the NHS. And uh, they'll do many things to try and exterminate us and make life difficult for us. And we'll still be there crawling around, (laughs) evolving and getting things done. Much better to work with us and we can get so much done. And a great GP is amazing for patients. I think we could all experience that. And I think a lot of patients, if you talk to them, they recognise that they have lost their GP. Their family doctor may have retired, may have reduced their sessions, may have gone to Canada. They get it on a personal level. It's on a population level that, that I think we're losing that narrative, that I think all we can do is work better with our patients to make that case. So I think there's a lot to be hopeful for. And I do feel much more optimistic now than perhaps I have done at any point since the pandemic. I also spoke to Royal College of GPs Chair Professor Camilla Hawthorne in October ahead of the college's annual conference. She was another brilliant guest and among other things she spoke to me about what the college would like to see happen to improve GP retention and how the RCGP is aiming to influence politicians in the run-up to next year's general election. Do you think there's really been any progress in the past year on retention? I know you were very disappointed with the lack of focus on it in the NHS workforce plan. So what would you like to see happen now? So you're right, the NHS workforce plan barely mentions retention and really Mm. gives no detail um, and certainly nothing specific for general practice. It has been very disappointing that neither the government nor Labour actually seem to be paying much attention to this. You know, that need for urgent repair and resourcing of retention schemes, because there are some, it's just that people don't know about them. They're very patchy, they're very localised, and sometimes they run out of funding. 
And by the time you may find out about them, it's kind of too late. You've already decided you're going. So I think there's an awful lot of work that needs to be done. And this is certainly something we're really focusing on in our lobbying. Now, I know that the NHS is conducting a review of retention schemes in general practice as we speak now, but that's been going on for months. And it's likely to be many months more before anything's done. And meanwhile, we have lots of suggestions. I don't think it's going to be a surprise to anybody what this review finds. We've got lots of suggestions as to what's needed. And we're worried that by the time it takes for the NHS to wake up to the situation, even more GPs will have left. And although the uh, long-term workforce plan is proposing 50% more GPs coming in, by the time they come in, they'll be coming into a wasteland because everybody else will have gone. That's not good. And you can see it happening. We keep offering to help and we're very keen to get involved and get stuck in. And what are some of those suggestions? What do you think the college can do to drive forward improving retention programmes? We've got lots of ideas on how retention strategies could be developed because, of course, people are leaving the profession at all stages of their career um, and people need different things at different stages. The government has already delivered in some ways, for example, by doing something about pensions. That's definitely a win. But people are still leaving because of workload and burnout. So there need to be retention strategies to deal with that. And there need to be strategies to deal with the younger GPs who finish their training hang about, not quite sure what to do, consider going abroad for a bit, sometimes forever, or who locum and really don't get stuck into general practice and don't really feel the joy of being a GP and getting to know a community and getting to know patients on a sort of regular basis. So we have lots of ideas on ways in which that could be repaired, in particular, the new to practice retention strategy for young GPs who just CCT'd who could spend two years in a salaried position with some headspace to develop themselves personally and professionally as well, develop an extended role, get to understand how a practice works, and quite probably will end up staying in that practice as a partner. But at the moment, there are just too many young GPs who are standing on the sidelines, afraid to dip their toe into the water of partnership, uh, which is just such a shame. So there's an awful lot that we could do as a college in broadcasting a national retention strategy, which is what we're asking for. We're asking for a national program with a national portal that everybody knows about and can access easily. And once they go through that portal, they can then be diverted off into whatever area it is of their career that's causing them strife and causing them to think about leaving. We're moving towards what will be a general election next year. What role do you see the college playing in influencing manifesto pledges around the NHS in the coming year? And what will you be arguing with people about? We're going to both the major party conferences, just been to the Conservative Party conference where I took part in one roundtable and two panel discussions, met seven backbench MPs on a one-to-one basis And that's all part of what we'll be doing at Labour as well. We're about to launch our own manifesto for general practice, which we're calling Seven Steps to Keep General Practice Functioning, Enable Us to Serve Our Patients. Um, If these steps are accepted, we think that we have a good chance of being able to offer a timely service to our patients with more continuity of care and a more holistic, up-to-date, patient-focused approach. So we're campaigning in those sort of key areas of workforce, in retention and infrastructure, patient safety and health inequalities. We're trying to engage with ministers from all the parties and shadow ministers and also beyond conference season as well to encourage them to champion issues facing GPs. 
And if you were the Prime Minister, what three things would you do to turn around the situation in general practice? Am I really only allowed three things? (laughs) (laughs) I I suppose it's tried to get you to prioritise. I know there's loads of things we could do. I know. I have seven in our manifesto, but okay. A national retention programme, a much more robust approach to the workload situation in general practice, reduction of bureaucracy, including COAF, unnecessary CQC, inspections and policing of the workload that's coming down to primary care from secondary care. That really does need good attention. And then the third one is a clearer approach to patient safety with a mandatory OPEL system for ICBs that triggers additional resources. Am I allowed to talk about the longer term then? Because I've got three more. Yeah, go for it. So assuming the above three are successful, and I hope I'm not cheating uh, with regard to your question, it would be increased resources to primary care, at least back to the 11% of the NHS budget that we had 12 or more years ago, really. Resources to improve the GP practice infrastructure so that we've got the space and facilities, not just for keeping the status quo. So what are we going to need in the next 10 or 20 years for 21st century general practice? And then the third one is health inequalities, um, reducing social inequalities. If I were the prime minister, maybe I could do that. And actually, you know, we've seen the prime minister say something very bold with all this stuff about smoking. Regardless of what you think of it and whether it'll work or not, it is actually a really bold announcement. So they can do it if they want to. And what I'd like to see is some work from the prime minister on reducing social inequalities, which we know are the key to health inequalities. You heard Dr. Katie Bramwell-Stainer discussing continuity of care earlier, and that's something we've spoken a lot about in the podcast over the past few years. Dr. Rowena Christmas is the chair of the Royal College of GPs in Wales, and she's done a lot of work for the college in recent years around relationship-based care. I spoke to her earlier this year about the importance of continuity and how practices can make this work using multidisciplinary teams. Can you explain a bit about why you believe continuity of care is so important? You know, studies have shown it's safer medicine, it's better medicine, and it's it's better for our patients, but it's also better for the doctors and the nurses. For me, I talk a lot about why general practice is wonderful, and I think actually it's that relationship-based care that is the heart of why it's such a magical job. You've got more empathy, perhaps, between your patients. They, they trust us more. If somebody has looked after your mum when she was dying and did it with kindness and care and compassion, that creates a trust that you just can't replicate in any other way. And, you know, lots of small encounters as well as huge encounters like that just build up to foster this sort of almost a a two-way sense of responsibility. So I'll have patients that I'll say, oh, I'll come and see you because I know they haven't got any transport and they're they're really sounding poorly. And then the receptionist to get a call back 10 minutes later from the patient's neighbour saying, oh, she wouldn't let Dr. Christmas come because she knows how busy she is, so I'm going to bring her in. And, you know, stuff that you you wouldn't expect at all. And, And sometimes you're sort of fighting patients to do more for them rather than the other way. It it just becomes a complete joy, really. There's a study by a team led by Sandvik, which shows that patients who've been registered with their GP for two years or more have a 30% lower risk of using out-of-hours service, 30% less likely to be admitted to hospital as an emergency. And the most extraordinary figure of all is that they have a 20% less likely chance of dying over the next 12 months than patients who've been registered with their GP for a year or less. It really does seem to make a difference. And, And that benefit increases the longer you've been with your GP. We know from statistics that that sort of implies that there is a causal relationship there. 
We don't really know why, but we suspect it's something to do with that trust making patients more likely to follow advice or take their medication or listen to safety netting and get back in touch with you if they're getting worse. They might be more likely to attend screening. All these really positive things that mean people have healthier lives. And it just makes us enjoy our job more. There's a lower risk of mistakes being made if you know your patients better. So all sorts of, you know, I could keep going on for ages about all, all the benefits of it. We need to sort of try and keep pushing forward to, to make it important. The college produced a document last year about the importance of relationship-based care, which talked about some of those things that you were discussing there and what it would like to see happen, I guess, to really embed it in practice across all four countries. One of the things it talks about is sort of incentivizing continuity of care. So like practices are really pushed towards providing continuity. I mean, how do you think that could work? It's difficult. And that's a great paper. If anyone wants to read it, it's, it's well worth a look. Mm. There's lots of evidence in there. We have quality and outcomes frameworks, you know, lots of various things that sort of dictate how we're paid. If you could pop continuity in there, I would love to see that. How we do it, I'm not quite sure. There's other ways that you can you can sort of incentivize continuity. It's very, very difficult for practices to recruit new GPs and, and, and other team members, whereas our practice, which has very good continuity of care, has managed to recruit two partners and two salaried doctors in the last two years. I, I you know, still count my blessings all the time. But the reason those doctors joined us was because they loved our model. You know, they loved the, the continuity we offer and the fact that they were going to get a, a patient list that they would get to know very well and no regrets from anyone. They feel it's been, you know, because it's quite a bold move to change practices, but they're all very happy in that environment. So that's a good incentive to sort of focus a bit more on offering that continuity. And if we can explain to patients why it's a good thing to not just go for the soonest available doctor, but perhaps if it's not an urgent problem, hold on and wait for the doctor that they saw last if they got on well with them, that would help us and, and explain to our receptionists sort of using algorithms where they can they can sort of channel patients into seeing the same person again. There are lots of methods where we can make this work. And it also talks about making it a national priority by providing more funding and support for practices to make sort of relationship-based care central to everything they do. How would you see that working? What kind of support could governments or NHS England in England, what could they kind of do to help practices deliver continuity of care? I think we have to move away from access being the be all and end all. Now, mm. there's no question if, for instance, you've got a, a child, they've got a sore throat, that child needs to be seen that day. You know, no, no messing about there. But for an awful lot of things, particularly people who've got chronic illness, you know, they're, they're having reviews for, for already diagnosed conditions. Those are going to be better managed by the same, you know, COPD nurse that you saw last time or the same doctor who helped you and understood the sort of first presentation of your depression. You don't have to go back over everything again. So if we can sort of Access is important for acute emergency problems, but it's not important for everything else. The other thing that's quite important now, I suppose, is, is, is we're not just talking about GPs anymore, are we? I mean, general practice now is very much a multidisciplinary team effort because there just aren't enough GPs. So how do you make relationship-based care work in, in that context? I think that's a really important message because not only are we 
we're not GPs now. We're multidisciplinary teams with fantastic nursing colleagues, pharmacy colleagues, lots of people have paramedics. They're all equally important. But also the old fashioned model where, you know, when I started, I was full time. My partner was full time. We were both there every day so we could be called upon. Um, most GPs aren't working every single day now. So we have to make this work for teams. So, you know, a good example is if I've got a patient who's who's dying, patient on the end of life care pathway. So say I go and visit them on Monday and then on the Tuesday when I'm I'm working for the RCGP, our St. David's nurse, like a Macmillan nurse, goes goes to see them. And then the district nurse visits on Wednesday. And all of us are talking every week and sharing information and any worries about that patient. And the patient and their family recognizes that we're all talking to each other. So if they talk to the St. David's nurse, that information is coming back to Dr. Christmas, who, who they want to, to know about it. They completely trust that in the same way that they'd just trust if, if it was just me visiting. And to be perfectly frank, if you've got that level of expertise, you know, the district nurse will know all sorts of things that I wouldn't know, the St. David's nurse just as much more. More, they're actually getting a better job from us as a team than just from one GP. So it's actually upping the quality of the care we're offering, but still maintaining that really important continuity. One of the things that people do worry about, and this comes up a lot, is we're, obviously we're facing a massive GP shortage. We talked there about teams, but general practice as a whole is under massive pressure. So are there any steps practices could take, like practical steps to sort of help make continuity a reality in the current climate? Or is it is it just quite difficult for some people to do it? I can't deny it's quite difficult for some people to do it. I think if you look big picture and over a longer time period, then if you've got continuity of care in place, it will actually reduce your workload because you won't have so many presentations. The the patient is more likely to feel listened to and feel that they've got a, a, a solution and a plan that they trust um, rather than keep presenting with the same problem because they just don't feel that they've they've got the answer they want. I think that's all really important and I'm, I'm going to continue to fight for it but I can't deny, you know, when, when you've got sort of 100 patients that need to be seen in that day and, and you've got a finite number of healthcare professionals to see them, it's very difficult. And I'm definitely not belittling that while I, I talk about the importance of continuity. It's all a bit of a balancing act. Back in February, I spoke to NHS England's Director for Health Inequalities, Professor Bola Owolabi. Since that conversation, Professor Owolabi has been appointed Vice President of the Royal Society for Public Health. I wanted her to come on the podcast after I saw a speaker at an event on health inequalities and I found her really inspiring. Here she is talking about the difference healthcare professionals can make when it comes to inequalities. One of the things that I'm quite interested in is obviously things like the social determinants of health, which Michael Marmot's done so much work around. They have a massive impact on health inequalities. And these are obviously really big, big issues, you know, to do with government policy that's often outside of the control of health, things like, you know, housing local government policy, they're often things that GPs feel they might not have any control over and they can make healthcare inequalities seem like they're quite intractable problems to solve or too big a problems. You do believe that healthcare professionals can make a difference and I was wondering if you could explain why you do. You're right that, you know, the social determinants of health are by far underway the biggest drivers of health inequalities, way more than healthcare inequalities. 
Um, and yes, the things you've outlined in terms of housing, education, household income, employment, um, access to opportunities. The reason I believe that we as GPs and healthcare professionals more broadly can have an impact, even in the space of the social determinants, is because there are a number of things we can do. First of all, in that patient interaction, just being cognizant of the impact of such things on people and inquiring into it. You know, prescription charges is a, is a really good example. Before we put somebody on multiple antihypertensives, have we stopped to check whether they could afford the first one we prescribed? And we could be the one to signpost them to a prescription exemption scheme. We can influence policy. Many of us now are in primary care networks. Those primary care networks are part of the integrated care system. Therefore, we can use our voices in the PCN to advocate for our patients and influence policy in that way. And also within the integrated care system, we now have the other parts of our communities like local authorities, like voluntary sector partners, like health and well-being boards. So we can use the opportunity of the ICS to speak into the space of social determinants, how housing could be driving people to have recurrent exacerbations of COPD, for example. And it doesn't matter how many antibiotics and rescue steroids and A&E attendances. If the housing situation is not fixed, A, it's a terrible life for the individual and it's a massive cost to the system. So I think you can begin to see how our patient-to-patient -patient interaction, there is enormous opportunity there. Our policy influence, our advocacy, our signposting, you know, these are things that are within our purview, even if we can't, as you say, make the big structural changes in that space. Our individual and collective effort in the ways that I've just been describing can be incrementally powerful and impactful, actually. Um, those are things I think we can do. And also, I've talked about the fact that many of us work in GP surgeries or in hospitals or other healthcare settings. And these places are anchor institutions, they're anchor institutions in the communities where we operate. Look, when everybody else has gone, the GP surgery is probably the last one standing. And so the way we choose to use our premises, I know that um, Dr. Fazana Hussein in Newham in London demonstrated this so wonderfully um, over Christmas, opening the surgery doors, you know, to people to come and keep warm um, and offering soup and bread rolls, you know, the way they chose to use the surgery itself, you know, as a, dare I say, a place of sanctuary in the community. Um, as anchor institutions, we can use our presence in that way to directly affect people's lives in, in those sorts of real ways, I would say.
Finally today, I thought it was worth sharing another clip from an episode from the early part of this year when I spoke to Ben Gowland, who's the director and founder of Ockham Healthcare, which is a think tank and consultancy that does a lot of work with primary care networks across England. Ben also has his very own successful podcast, the General Practice Podcast, which he's been presenting since 2016. In this episode, we were looking at what the future holds for primary care networks as we entered the final year of the five-year contract. Obviously, that contract comes to an end in the early part of next year. And while it's unlikely we're going to see massive contractual changes from April, the future of primary care networks is something that's likely to be debated extensively in the coming year. This is what Ben had to say on this earlier this year. Do you think PCNs will last beyond 2024? Do you think they're here to stay? Well, I think if you think about what's happening with the NHS more widely as a kind of context, right? So the NHS has shifted from a commissioner provider model to this model of integrated care Mm. systems. And the NHS understands that general practice needs to be part of that partnership of providers that's kind of at the heart of what an integrated care system is. Its first response to that was to set up primary care networks. It's kind of, that is why NHS England introduced primary care networks into the 2019 contract. So I think we can say with a fairly high level of certainty that what the system is going to want is groups of practices that are at a PCN size to continue to work together going forward. Whether that's still called exactly a PCN and it looks exactly as it is now, we don't know. But what isn't going to happen is a kind of abandonment of PCNs and a move back to 7,000 individual practices operating independently, making it even harder for the system to do business with them. So I don't really share that kind of worries that, oh, this could all go tomorrow. My concern really is that general practice could lose control of primary care networks and lose control of the resources in that and lose some of the gains that have been made in the last few years. So for me, that's a bigger danger than risk that I don't think exists, that something like PCNs won't exist going forward. What would that look like if they lost control? It's interesting when you look at the additional roles. Most PCNs now would have over a million pounds worth of additional roles. And so the rest of the system looks at PCNs and goes, wow, look at all this resource. Look at all these staff. We would love to have been given all these extra staff to work in our organization. When you look at the Fuller Report, so the Fuller Report is the biggest signal we have about what's going to come next from primary care networks. And so that talked about primary care networks evolving into integrated neighborhood teams. An integrated neighborhood teams really being that original model that we just talked about, about GP practices working with community trusts and voluntary sector and the acute trust and everybody in their PCN locality. How does that work in practice, right? So does that mean the system, so someone maybe above general practice, suddenly controls this integrated neighborhood team? And does that mean they take control of the ARS staff? That's a potential risk, I would say. I mean, interestingly, as you see, you know, there are some places that are trying to move ahead with integrated neighborhood teams. And it, it looks, I know it varies place to place, but the places that I've seen, it looks more like the primary care network represents the GP practices working together and how they operate in the integrated neighborhood team rather than the primary care network itself becoming the integrated neighborhood team. So, you know, should general practice remove itself 
from the PCN contract now, you know, at year four going into year five. Well, that seems ridiculous to me because the risk that it then runs, because that resource isn't going to get shifted into core contracts. That resource that sits in PCNs will just get given to the community trust. And general practice has lost control of all the resource that sits effectively accrued over the last four years. So I think general practice needs to be careful how it kind of moves forward through this sort of last year of this contract and into the period of the next contract. Well, that's it for this special interview highlights episode. Thank you so much for listening. And I'd just like to say a really big thank you to all of the guests who appeared on Talking General Practice during 2023. I spoke to some really brilliant people who are doing really important and interesting work. Don't forget you can find the full versions of all the interviews from this episode and my chats with everyone else in our podcast feed on our website at gponline.com. So I'd just like to wish you all a very happy new year. I'll be back in 2024 when I'll be speaking to lots of new people and probably some familiar people as well. If there's anyone you think would be good to have on the podcast who you'd like me to talk to, or you have any good news stories you'd like to share for our news roundup, do please email me at emma.bauer at haymarket.com. 